Good morning. Well, as Tiffany says, we have a very difficult topic to talk about this morning, so I thought we might start out with a, a little lighthearted humor. So let's watch this video. She came in the house, she had the box, Rev saw it. Rev said, what, another dress? This is ridiculous. Three dresses in a week, another dress? And she tells him, I didn't want to buy this dress. <laughs> the devil made me buy this dress. She said, I was going down the street, I was minding my own business, singing to myself. I said, what you said? <laughs> and the devil stopped following me, telling me how good I look. <laughs> I don't know if it was very clear from that clip. He referred to Rev, but apparently the sinner in that video clip was a preacher's wife who had a little problem with shopping. Now, I can't relate to that at all. I don't know about you. Um, but what I do know is the devil doesn't make me buy that dress. Amazon Prime does. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> Just kidding, sort of. <laughs> well, I wanted to start out with that, not because temptation is funny, it's not, but because it's something that we all can relate to. And I thought maybe a little comic relief right up front might help us to lower our defenses so that we can talk about this topic. Can we talk? All right. Well, temptation obviously isn't a very polite or comfortable subject. Um, but James, our dear brother, will not let us ignore it or pretend that it's no big deal. In fact, in our passage today, he uses a very vivid and sort of alarming word picture to describe the destructive nature of temptation, right? He speaks in terms of conception, pregnancy, and birth. And he says if temptation isn't dealt with, there is a birth to sin and death. But on the other hand, he offers us another kind of birth, a birth to life and fruitfulness. So in a nutshell, James is teaching us that we must deal effectively with temptation so that we can live the fruitful life that God wants us to live. That's what this whole section is about, dealing with temptation so that we can live the life we were meant for. And don't we all want that? I know I do. So James is going to tell us two things we need to recognize about the nature of temptation and two things, practical things, we need to do in order to deal with the temptations that all of us face. And spoiler alert, James is not going to use guilt, fear, or shame to motivate us, okay? Can't wait to get to that part. It's something else entirely. Um, but first, let's uh, put this whole thing into context. James began his letter by exhorting Christians everywhere to persevere in all of their various trials and hardships, not resisting them, but allowing God to graciously refine us and enable us to take on more of the characteristics of Jesus so that we ultimately lack nothing to live the kind of life God wants us to live. The problem is, it's hard to persevere when life is hard, right? God knows that. Jesus experienced that. Do you remember his temptation in the wilderness? It was after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was weak. And that's when temptation came. And it was real. And it was intense. It's no surprise then that the word temptation is from the same root word as trial in the original language of the New Testament. 
So trials can either be opportunities for testing, which produces good things, or they can be opportunities for temptations, which produces nothing good. The difference is in how we choose to respond. So let's jump in and read James 1, 13 to 15. He writes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So right out of the chute, the first thing James wants us to come to grips with about temptation is that it is sourced in ourselves. Temptation is sourced in ourselves. We are sin prone by nature. And so as much as we really want to look around and blame the devil or our circumstances or other people or even God sometimes, James says, first, you take a look in the mirror. Temptation comes from the lure of our own evil desires. And so although we know the devil is real, and he may tempt us sometimes, and he often does, he cannot make us sin. He doesn't have that kind of power. The devil didn't make the preacher's wife buy that dress. The devil didn't make Eve taste that fruit. Other people may tempt us to sin, but they can't make us sin either. Eve didn't make Adam sin. Bathsheba didn't make David sin. They did it of their own free will. Difficult circumstances often tempt us to react sinfully, to react in anger or fear or doubt or selfishness, but even they don't have the power to make us sin. Remember, James is writing to believers, that is, to those who have committed themselves to Jesus Christ, the one who has delivered us, not just from the guilt and penalty of our sin through his death and resurrection, but also from the power of sin to continue to control our lives. Remember, Jesus ascended into heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than any other power that is in the world, including the power of sin and the devil. Therefore, James's point is that when we sin, it is ultimately because we choose to, not because anyone or anything made us do it. Ouch. That's a very sobering reality, isn't it? But it's also a very liberating reality, so stay with me. The first thing James wants us to recognize is that temptation is sourced in ourselves. But he's more specific than that. He says it's sourced in our own desires. The NIV translation says our own evil desires. And so we need to talk about our desires, don't we? What do you desire? What are the longings in your heart? And what makes a desire an evil one? Well, James uses a particular Greek word to distinguish good desires from evil ones. The word is epithumios. Oh, I said that. <laughs> and it's also translated lust. So it's not simply a desire, but it's an excessive desire, either for something forbidden or even for something good, but its excess is literally driving our lives so that you have no other purpose for your life other than achieving it. It's all you can think about. 
And that's the insidious thing, really, about epithumios. It can start out as a God-given good desire. Sometimes for intangible things, like beauty and happiness and peace and freedom. Sometimes it's for good specific things, like a husband, a child, a secure job, a safe place to call home, a best friend. Um, Epithumias can happen even when normal, when normal desires escalate into intense, all-consuming longings. More examples. God gave us the desire for certain physical pleasures, didn't he? Things like food, sex, and sleep. Those are good desires. They're even needs, but they can escalate into gluttony, sexual addiction, and laziness. At its, at its extreme, and there's all kinds of things in between. The Apostle John in his first epistle call these kinds of desires the lusts of the flesh. But also the desire to acquire things uh, that we may need for life or things that we simply enjoy um, is common to us all, and, and the material possessions and the acquisitions of them are not evil in themselves. They're part of God's blessings, but what happens when they become the driving force in our lives so that we think more about getting than giving? We spend more so that we have less to give. More on a, we spend on ourselves rather than others. Materialism, the desire to possess everything that we see. The Apostle John called this the lust of the eyes. And you know, our lesson today spent a lot of time talking about how our lives, our eyes can lead us into sin, right? Well, finally, I think God has given us uh, the desire to achieve certain things, to rule the earth, to make a significant contribution in this world. And that's a good thing. But when we become so enamored with... Um, achieving our own personal success and significance and self-glory rather than God's glory and achieving his agenda, we've crossed over to what the Apostle John called the boastful pride of life. And if you can relate to any or all of these things, well then, welcome to the human race. Because those are the exact same temptations Adam and Eve faced in the garden. They're the same temptations that David faced when he was on his rooftop and saw Bathsheba, and they are the same temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. The difference is, Jesus did not allow his human desires to escalate into lusts. Desires become evil when we allow them to take God's place in our lives so that they become the source and the focal point of our happiness, our identity, our comfort, our security, and ultimately our life. In other words, when desires become idols, we're in trouble. We've got a problem. Got any idols? And again, it's often pressure from the outside that causes us to be tempted on the inside, to indulge God-given desires in the wrong way. That's because our sins are often the reaction to stresses and distresses in life. Excessive shopping like that preacher's wife in the video, for example. Perhaps she did it to fill, fulfill, uh, to fill a void in her life. Maybe that's why we do it. Maybe we overeat for the same reason, to find comfort. Or maybe we undereat to feel in control of something, of anything. 
Maybe we over-medicate to relieve or avoid pain. Maybe we overact in anger in order to feel like we're in power and in control. Maybe we get involved in immoral relationships because becoming happy has become our idol. I could go on and on, couldn't I? Because temptations don't come out of nowhere. They're in our hearts already. So that what begins with, I want that, can become, I need that. I need more of that. And I'll do whatever it takes to get it. And we may be thinking, consciously or subconsciously, well, God isn't taking care of me, so I need to take care of myself. Wow, it's quiet in here. The first thing we need to understand about temptation is that it is sourced in ourselves, that is, in our own desires. The second thing James wants us to understand is that temptation follows a predictable pattern. He wants us to recognize the pattern so that we can avoid getting caught up into it, into that downward spiral. So I want us to see if we can discern this pattern from our late great theologian, Mr. Flip Wilson. Let's watch again. Rep said, well, how'd the devil get you to buy the dress? She said, I was going down the street, I was singing, what you say on me every day. And I heard the devil coming up behind me with tiptoeing, and I said to myself, I'm not going to look back, because I know it's the devil. <laughs> and then he sneaked up and leaned over my shoulder and said, say, mama, look at that dress in the window there. He said, it's on sale, so that's your size, too. Got a lot of flowers. You know you like a lot of flowers. So why don't you treat yourself to that dress? I said, cut that out, devil. I ain't buying no dresses. You better leave me alone, honey. Devil said, well, won't you try it on? You can try it on. Rev will never know about you trying it on. It's free. They're not going to charge you nothing to try it on. You owe yourself a try on. I said, I'm not even trying it on, devil. I'm not even going to go in there and look at it. That's when the devil shoved me in the door. <laughs> Uh, she blamed the devil for her downfall. And you know what? James is going to talk about the devil in chapter 4. But in chapter 1, he's saying each one of us is tempted by his own evil desire. He is dragged away and enticed. James is using a metaphor from the fishing and hunting world here. The phrase dragged away has the connotation of initial resistance. I didn't want to buy that dress. See, no one ever intends to develop a simple habit, do they? Do we? The word enticed means to catch by using bait. So it's sometimes translated lure. A lure is a deception, right? Just like different kinds of fish are caught with different kinds of bait. Each of us finds certain things tempting to us in life and, and others not. Right? And if we have any sense of self-awareness, we know what those things are about ourselves. But all too often, we start chasing the bait and listening to the voice, probably not of the devil, but of our own self-deception. It's your size. It's on sale. You like flowers. not going to cost you anything to try it on. You should treat yourself. You deserve that. We even drag God into our deception. I know God would want me to be happy. He would want me to have that. Our desires drag us away and we keep following the bait. And actually sometimes we dangle that bait right in front of our eyes. 
we intentionally put ourselves in places of temptation. What exactly was that preacher's wife doing standing there in front of the store window for the third time that week? How long had Eve been standing there gazing up at that delicious fruit before the voice of temptation came? See, the longer we dangle the bait, the more temptation says, I gotta have it. God would want me to have it. I'll do anything to get it. And that's the point of no return. We have swallowed the bait, hook, line, and sinker. And it's only a matter of time before the deal is done. That's the pattern of temptation. It's a cycle, really. Escalating desire leads to deceit, leads to more deceit, leads to disobedience. Another word for disobedience is sin. And sin is what James tells us gives birth to some form of death. If that preacher's wife doesn't get a grip on her spending habits, she's going to experience, at the very least, a death of financial freedom, if not the loss of her marriage. I know lots of marriages that have broken up because of money. But it was just a dress. I know, such a little thing. But that's part of the deception. Little things can set into motion little choices along the way, lots of them that lead to big consequences. Just one little glance at internet pornography, just one little lie, just one little morsel of gospel, uh, gossip, just one little email. I have a, a friend, I'll call her Susan, who got caught up in this death spiral a few years ago and the result was disastrous. Um, Susan is a Christian and she had a very normal desire to be cherished by her husband. But her husband was sort of a no-nonsense type of guy and he wasn't very sensitive to her feelings and sometimes she, she even felt devalued by the way that he treated her or sometimes the things that he said to her. And so you can imagine the kind of trial, right, and the vulnerability that she had. Well, one day, Susan met a man who was very attentive to her. He valued her opinions, he listened to her thoughts with interest. There's the bait. They begin to email each other infrequently at first, but then more and more. And then the phone calls began. She was chasing the bait. One night an overnight, or one day an overnight rendezvous was planned and she had swallowed the hook. And I don't need to go on, do I? It all ended up in the death of her marriage and a kind of death in her relationship with her children because they blamed her for the breakup of their family. She lives alone now. That relationship didn't work out. And she's desperately trying to rebuild her relationship with her children. And it's so hard. And it's so sad. The two things James wants us to really grasp about the nature of temptation is that it's sourced in ourselves, in our desires, and it follows a predictable pattern. Desire, deceit, disobedience, and then finally disaster. No one wants to get caught up in that cycle, do we? So now we get to get to the good stuff. In the next few verses, James gives us two very practical steps to take and some very positive reasons to take them. 
besides just avoiding bad stuff, okay? He writes in verses 16 to 18, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. May I paraphrase that? Say no to the bait and cling to the goodness of God because he has better things for your life. Say no to the bait. Don't be deceived, James says. In other words, be proactive. Don't passively give in to your desires. You don't have to. There's too much at stake. I believe he would have us identify our specific vulnerabilities, examine our longings in light of God's word. That plumb line Jody talked about the first week and Amy brought up again last week, it's so important. And that way you can recognize the bait when you see it and you can silence the uh, deceitful voices of your own desires before they even start. Jesus said, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. That is active resistance, isn't it? The Apostle Paul gave us a warning and a promise regarding temptation in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. In other words, stay vigilant. Don't be passive. He writes, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We all share it. We can't judge anyone. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, here's the deal. When we pray for God to show us a way out of temptation, I believe it's like asking him for wisdom, like James talked about last time. When we ask, we cannot be double-minded. In other words, we cannot let our loyalty be divided between the way of temptation and sin and the way of God. I don't think God will show us the way out if we're determined to stay partially in. It's the difference between confessing our sin, which means to admit that we're struggling with it, and that's a good thing. We start there with honesty before God and ourselves, but then we've got to go to true repentance. The word repent just means to turn around. You turn your back on temptation. You say no to the bait so that you can go in the direction of God's goodness. I have uh, a very dear friend of mine who battles a particular uh, temptation. It's her area of vulnerability, and I really relate to it. I've learned so much from her. Um, And her temptation is not so much to do something wrong, but to believe something false about herself. So much so, uh, there are thoughts of of self-rejection and comparing herself to other people. And they get to the point where she's not able to love others the way she wants to. She can't love herself and she can't serve Christ as fully as she wants to because it just holds her back. And so she's determined to fight this thing. She's made a a plan. She prays a lot. She's a prayer warrior. And she also uses a tactic that the Apostle Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 10 where he includes himself in this whole struggle with temptation. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
In other words, we are not meant to live in the imagination of our minds where desires escalate into idols. We are to live in the reality of truth. And James teaches us that God made us his children by the word of truth. So that when we face temptation, we can take captive our thoughts according to Christ's example, his teachings, his words, his truth revealed in the scriptures. My friend tells me that when those wrong thoughts, those false thoughts come into her mind, she literally says no out loud and she holds up her hand because she's not going to let those thoughts sprout wings and fly away out of control. And she's replacing those lies with what scripture says is true about God. And that's exactly what will motivate us to say no to the bait. When it comes right down to it, how you respond to temptation, trials in general, comes down to what you believe about God. So what is God like? James wants us to know that God is good. It is fundamental to his nature. He can't not be good. We have to cling to that, cling to the knowledge that God is unable to be tempted by sin and he does not tempt anyone and he doesn't orchestrate circumstances to trip us up and make us fall. God wants good for us more than we want good for ourselves. He's on our side and he proves it by the gifts that he gives to us. James says, think of God like a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. If you are a parent, you understand that desire. You know the joy that you have when you're able to give your children good things. I used to tell my kids when they would beg me for stuff, I'd say, I'd give you the moon if I could. Of course, they didn't want the moon. They wanted something a little more practical, like an iPhone or a car, something else out of reach. <laughs> Besides, God had already given them the moon and the stars to light up the night sky and the sun, to light the day and to keep them warm and to make things grow. Sometimes in our struggle with temptation, we forget all the good and perfect things that God has already given us, tangible and intangible things. So James says, look up and look around you and look within you and take your focus off the things that you don't have so that you can focus on the things that you already possess because God is good. Psalm 103 has always been helpful to me in this regard. I just love it. The psalmist writes, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to his soul. And he says, forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, and listen to this, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I'm just struck that the very first blessing the psalmist mentions is the forgiveness of sins. Think about what a gift that is. Forgiveness means that we are forever and completely released from the guilt and the shame. And that is true because God opened heaven's door and he sent down his best and most perfect gift to us, his son Jesus Christ, who is the word of truth. 
James says in verse 18, that God in his own goodness, not ours, chose to give us birth through the word of truth. He wasn't talking about our physical birth. He's talking about spiritual rebirth. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the ultimate proof of God's goodness to us. Paul, in addressing the believers in Ephesus, whom he described as those who had believed the word of truth about Jesus, he wrote these words in Ephesians 2. He says, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live. Then he includes himself. All of us also at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. And what Paul said to the Ephesians applies to us. We have been made alive. We are alive. We have a life, a new and good life that God means for us to live right here in the midst of our trials and our struggles. It's a new life of purpose and fruitfulness that is reflected in that little word, first fruits, that James used in verse 18. I don't know if you had a chance to go back and look at those verses in Leviticus, but it's referring to the Old Testament offerings where the Israelites would bring the first of their harvest and offer it to God. It was a representative portion, symbolizing that the whole thing belonged to God and that the whole thing was because of God's goodness, that they had a harvest. And it symbolized that there was more to come, more to come because God is good. The first century Christians that James was writing to were the first fruits of all of us who would follow behind them. We are here because they stayed faithful to God in the midst of their trials and their temptations and so passed on their faith to the second generation who passed their faith on to the third and so on down the line. And we get to be the first fruits of all who will follow us. We persevere, we stay faithful because we are lighting the way for those who will follow us so that they can know and experience the goodness of God. And reading through the entire book of James, I don't know if you obey the writer of our lesson when she tells us to read the whole book before we do the lesson, but I can't help but notice, even though James's little paragraphs are kind of short and pithy and um, uh, kind of right to the point, you can just see woven throughout there the things that God wants for our lives. And so I, I read through them and there's so many references to the kind of life we were meant to live as followers of Jesus. Lives of wholeness, of wisdom, of stability, of blessedness, of purposefulness, of righteousness, of freedom and love and generosity and hope. And there's more, all good things from an all good God who does not change. James described God as the father of the heavenly lights. It was his way of saying that God, God's constant nature is to bring light to our darkness. He created the sun, moon, and stars literally to remove the darkness in the world. But God's light is unlike their light in that his light doesn't change. It doesn't shift. It doesn't cast shadows. James is saying, don't worry. God has always been good he is good now. He will always be good. He can't stop doing good things for us or desiring good things for us. And he has the power to make good come from anything, all of our struggles. And there's nothing he can't or won't do to bring light to our darkness. 
no matter what we're facing. And that's why the Bible's most beloved Psalm, Psalm 23, speaks of God as a good shepherd who is leading us through all the ups and downs of life. And he concludes with these famous words. He says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word follow is more accurately translated pursue or chase. God is chasing after you with his goodness and his steadfast love. I would challenge you to let him catch you. Let him help you. Invite him into your struggles, whatever they are. Cling to his goodness. He's not disappointed with you just because you struggle. We all do. He knows it's a fight. He wants to be in the ring with you. So I'd like to bring this to a close right now with a prayer, but it's, it's a prayer put to music by Bethel House, and it's called Goodness of God. We sing it a lot around here. The words will be on the screen as it, as it plays. I'd like you to think about God's goodness as a motivation to dealing with the temptations that, um, uh, that come into your life so that you can live the life God wants for you. Feel free to sing along if you want to. Feel free to close your eyes and, play, and uh, pray along. Um, and then I will, just whatever you want to do, then I'll come up and close this out.
to deal with temptation so that we can live the good and fruitful life he wants us to live. And we do that by recognizing that temptation is sourced in ourselves. It follows a, predictive, a predictable pattern. But with God's help, we can say no to the bait. We can cling to God, the giver of every good and perfect gift, the father of heavenly lights, in whom, he, in whom there is no shifting shadow. My daughter-in-law is a licensed therapist. She recently posted this statement on Instagram. She said, if you're still st struggling, it doesn't mean that you haven't made progress. And I love that. In other words, any kind of inner transformation or healing is a process. Often it feels like three steps forward and two steps back, right? But it's progress. So give yourself some grace. God does. He knows we'll always struggle with temptation and unfulfilled longings in this life. Staying in the fight pleases him very much, and he's with you. And he's given you good and perfect gifts, his word, his spirit, and his family. We're in this with each other. We're better together, as we say in women's ministry. And so if you're here today, if you need some specific help to deal with some hurtful patterns or habits or addictions, we have Hope and Healing Ministries resources available at IBC, including recovery, including grief share and other things. We have a wonderful staff that is available to meet with anyone in need. They can point you to uh, some uh, counseling also if you need that. Uh, we don't do this alone, okay? Let me pray and close this out. Heavenly Father, um, you are good. And um, many of us have come today struggling with different kinds of trials and temptations. Lord, we confess that our temptations um, uh, to fear and to doubt, to, to chase after other things, to fill our souls. And all the while you're chasing after us. Give us the grace to stop running, to turn around, and let you embrace us with your goodness and your steadfast love. Reset our focus on all the good and perfect gifts you've already given us, primarily the gift of new life through the forgiveness of all our sins because of your best gift, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's girls said, amen.